There are two sides to every story. Take, for example, Gavrilo Princip, who we've already covered on this podcast. A polarizing figure to this day, he's seen to his fellow Serbs as a national hero, while to the Austrians he's naturally considered an extremist who single-handedly brought about the start of the Great War, World War I. My point for bringing this up here is that so much of history is about perspective, and based upon who you ask, the same events can be perceived in two different ways. That was certainly the case for the subjects of today's episode, who defected from one side of a war to join another. I'm Chester Sakamoto, your host, and today we'll be taking a look at an elite yet bizarre battalion of seemingly unlikely soldiers who, to some, are regarded as heroes, and to others as traitors, right here on the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. When it comes to conflicts involving the United States, the Mexican-American War tends to receive little play in the history books and remains one of the oft-overlooked events of the 19th century. And yet the impact it had on both nations was truly astounding, as the United States would gain an eventual six states from it, drastically reducing Mexico's landmass in the process. The spark that ignited the flames of war was a border dispute in what's now Texas on an isolated speck of land known as the Nueces Strip. With the absorption of Texas into the Union after the collapse of its status as an independent republic, the Mexican The Mexican government refused to recognize Texas as American territory. Tensions between the two powers rose until, on April 25, 1846, Mexican troops in the vicinity of the Nueces Strip fired on American soldiers. It was all the incentive that then-President James K. Polk needed to declare war. At roughly the same time as all this was going on, an event half a world away began that would forever change the face of America. In 1845, a case of blight of unknown origins began affecting the potato crop in Ireland. This crop, a staple and necessity in the Irish diet of the time, meant that starvation and even death were imminent. Over the ensuing five years, millions of destitute Irish farmers fled their homeland in search of better lives for themselves elsewhere. As Ireland at the time was part of the British Empire, these immigrants fled to some of Britain's overseas holdings, including Australia, New Zealand, and Canada. Still more landed in the United States, where they settled into crowded, slum-like tenements in cities such as New York and Boston. No sooner had these pitiful refugees arrived on American soil were they employed to work various odd and grueling jobs, including those on railroads, in shipyards, or even in coal mines. Still others were recruited into the army for military service, where they often underwent brutal training exercises, after which time they were promised high salaries and large tracts of land, neither of which ever materialized. In conjunction, most of the Irish arriving were Catholic, and as America was largely a Protestant nation at the time, these new arrivals were chastised and barred from maintaining their religious practices. By the time the Mexican-American War had begun, many Irish in the United States had had enough of this unfair treatment and saw the emerging conflict as the perfect opportunity to strike back. One such disillusioned Irishman was John Riley. Though he'd voluntarily enlisted in the United States Army, where so many of his compatriots had been drafted, he was quick to note the inequalities his people faced on the American side of the border. In conjunction, the supposed enemy in the form of Mexico was itself a predominantly Catholic country, meaning that Irish troops were becoming increasingly sympathetic to their cause. Throughout the early days of the conflict, the Mexican government had also been promising American defectors land grants and high salaries, not unlike the incentives proposed by the U.S. government, though the former actually fulfilled their words. Such an offer proved far too tantalizing for the likes of Riley and his ilk, and soon he defected over to the Mexican side, whereupon he founded his own battalion, known in Spanish as the Batallón de San Patricio, or simply the San Patricios, literally the St. Patrick's, a reference to its largely Irish immigrant makeup. 
At first, the Sampatricios were almost exclusively Irish, but as the conflict wore on, several other European expatriate and immigrant soldiers, as well as many escaped African-American slaves from the American South, joined its ranks. Commanded by Riley himself, they burst onto the historical scene in the Battle of Monterrey on September 21, 1846. Referred to as Los Colorados by their Mexican comrades due to the, quote, ruddy, sunburnt complexions and red hair color of the battalion's Irish constituents, unquote, they go on to quell three separate enemy assaults on the town of Monterrey, killing a great many American troops in the process. Despite these victories, as well as the tenacity they displayed on the battlefield, however, the Mexican army ultimately decided to abandon its position in Monterrey altogether. But this battle spread word throughout both Mexico and the United States of the San Patricios, gaining them a considerable amount of fame and notoriety. What began as a unit of some 175 people initially turned, by the end of the entanglement in Monterrey, into a force some 700 strong. Regrouping at the east-central Mexican town of San Luis Potosí, their distinct green silk flag was embroidered there for the first time. Emblazoned with a gold Celtic harp and the words Eren Gobrach beneath between two golden shamrock branches, it was this flag that would become the battalion's official banner, and one that would be flown wherever the San Patricios were deployed to fight throughout the course of the war. Indeed, this unique battalion fought many battles throughout the course of the conflict, gaining new recruits nearly each and every time, be they American defectors or European immigrants from both the United States and Mexico. But it was in the notorious Churubusco campaign in which they really made a name for themselves. Taking place on August 20th, 1847, General Antonio López de Santa Ana, of the Battle of Alamo fame, ordered his troops, including of course the San Patricios, to quote, preserve the point at all risk, unquote. Located on the southern environs of present-day Mexico City, it was characterized by a steep hill topped by a well-fortified church and convent. Such a prize would prove to be of highly strategic importance to the victor. So it was that the San Patricios went to meet the advancing Americans outside the walled cathedral. Backed with support from two battalions, the Los Independencia and the Los Bravos respectively, the San Patricios were equipped with a battery of three to five heavy cannons, which they used, quite skillfully, to fend off the American advance on the heavily fortified convent. But while the San Patricios were largely made up of veterans, those who'd served in previous American, British, or other European wars, the supporting battalions on the Mexican side were mostly comprised of what we know as National Guardsmen or Militia, aka people with little to no fighting experience, who simply enlisted to support their country. Many of this latter group had never actually been in battle before, and it was largely for this reason that the campaign at Churubusco slowly began to turn in favor of the Americans. In addition, Mexican forces holed up in trenches around the hill soon ran out of ammunition, and quickly disbanded so as to avoid cruel and horrible fates at the hands of the well-armed Americans. In turn, General Santa Ana ordered half of them to regroup at another part of the battlefield. When the ammunition wagon finally did come around, however, things only got worse for the Mexican side. The nine-and-a-half drachm cartridges that arrived were incompatible with the weapons used by the San Patricios, specifically the Brown Bess musket that was their signature weapon of choice. As they say, when it rains it pours, and to add insult to injury, a stray spark from a cannon blast ended up igniting the newly arrived ammunition, causing a massive explosion that ultimately set two commanding officers ablaze. With morale low and chaos erupting all around them, the remaining Mexican troops were ordered to withdraw within the fortified convent at Churubusco, as it became increasingly clear that the Americans would take the hill and its church stronghold. But the San Patricios still had a bit of fighting spirit left in them, and they wanted to teach their former American overlords a lesson. Records from the battle indicate that, quote, the large number of American officers killed in the affair was ascribed to them, and that they aimed at no other objects during the engagement, unquote. 
To demonstrate just how determined and ruthless they were in this pursuit, at one point during the skirmish, American troops broke through Mexican defenses and mistook members of the San Patricios as their own comrades. No sooner had the Americans zipped past them did they shoot them down, sparing only one lone survivor. Soon it was clear that they were greatly outnumbered, yet they continued fighting down to the last bit of ammunition, at which point a Mexican officer raised the white flag of surrender. Needless to say, this act didn't bode well with the San Patricios. One of the unit's officers, Patrick Dalton, famously tore the banner down and urged another general to order his men to fight with their bare hands if necessary. An American private recalled in his personal effects that, on two more occasions, the Mexicans attempted to raise the white flag, both of which resulted in the same outcome. The men who done so were shot to death by the San Patricios. The message among this elite and unique unit was clear, that under no circumstances were they to surrender, and that, if need be, they'd fight to the last man. By the end of the Battle of Churubusco, fighting between both sides resorted to close quarters contact within the confines of the hilltop convent. Bayonets, sabers, and daggers were employed, and the exchanges became so brutal that a U.S. Army captain, James M. Smith, even went as far as to suggest a surrender. After much consideration, knowing full well they'd been defeated, the San Patricios capitulated at last, much to the satisfaction of the surviving American troops, the latter of whom would, according to one Irishman who was there, quote, ventilate their vocabulary of Saxon expletives, not very courteously, on John Riley and his beautiful disciples of St. Patrick, unquote. In all, 35 San Patricios lost their lives in the Battle of Churubusco. Eighty-five more were taken prisoner, including Riley himself, who'd sustained an injury in the campaign. Still another eighty-five retreated with the other Mexican forces. Those survivors who recovered were later regrouped before the Battle of Mexico City, which took place two weeks after Churubusco. Fifty of these were deployed to serve as the personal bodyguard for the Mexican president. Much to their chagrin, however, they soon realized that they'd been placed under the authority of a faction who opted to end the conflict on peaceful terms. Throughout the remainder of the conflict, the San Patricio served as two infantry companies personally overseen by Riley, with one stationed in Mexico City proper for sentry duty and the other meant to guard the suburbs of nearby Guadalupe Hidalgo. These two companies would continue to serve until the end of the war, at which time they were officially disbanded. The war would rage on for another year and a half before officially coming to an end on February 2nd, 1848, with the signing of the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. A clause in the document extended to the San Patricios themselves, stating that those prisoners held by American forces in Mexico were to be returned to the country which they'd bravely and valiantly served. As for those who had been extradited to the United States, they naturally faced a much harsher fate. After all, they had, in the eyes of American law, deserted their posts in a time of war, and were therefore charged with treason. The punishment for such a crime, quote-unquote, was death by hanging. In all, 50 San Patricios were executed by the U.S. Army, which to this day remains the largest mass execution in American history. While stories from both sides of the Mexican-American War have endured, it's the tales of heroism and unwavering bravery that have forever cemented the San Patricios in the annals of history. To this day, they're still regarded as heroes in Mexico, and depending upon who you ask stateside, are seen as traitors here in America. But regardless of your stance on this elite unit, it's clear the indelible mark they've left on the public consciousness in both countries. The strength and fortitude of the San Patricios is inspiring, to say the least, and encourages us to always stand up firmly for our beliefs and to rally against injustice. Thank you so much for listening, and a special shout-out goes to supporter, listener, and above all friend Steve Barnett for suggesting this episode a couple months back. I'd admittedly never heard of the San Patricios, and I can only hope I've done them justice. If you enjoyed this topic and would like to support this podcast to ensure continued content, please consider supporting it monthly. Just go to podcasters.spotify.com forward slash pod forward slash show forward slash history loves company, all one word, and click the support button, which will take you to three monthly support plans that fit your budget. 
Listening and sharing also helps, so please do so on all streaming platforms. Join me again next week for another installment of the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. This is Chester Sakamoto signing off for now. See you next time.